for our sermon. As you may remember, we've been in the Gospel of Matthew for, for quite some time now. And of course, it's Easter, so we're going to talk about Christ, his death, his resurrection. Uh, so since we've been in the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to look at the account of, of Christ's death and resurrection from the Gospel of Matthew, sort of continue in that series, but also with it being Easter, focus on the death and resurrection of Christ. So here, as we look at the death and resurrection, this is something that certainly people are very well aware of and well acquainted with, even outside the church. You could go outside the walls of the church and talk to people, and they know the fact that Christians believe that in Christ and that he died and that he rose from the dead. Uh, within the church, certainly we know this. We understand that Christ died and rose from the dead. But I think what is often the reality is that people don't really understand exactly why. Certainly outside of the church, they don't understand why or or at the very least don't affirm it. But I would say oftentimes even those who regularly attend church and they've heard all sorts of teaching over their lives about Christ and how he died and how he rose uh, from the dead, they understand that that factual reality, but they really have no sense of why he died. Why did he do that? What's this all about, his death and resurrection? What is he accomplishing here? What's its purpose? And so I think oftentimes people know, okay, yes, it happened, But why did it happen? And I think that's often something that people fail to understand. So we're going to really dive deep here uh, in Matthew as we look at the death and resurrection of Christ uh, and not just look at what it says in the sense of, yes, he died and rose, but really what's going on? What's it all about? What's the significance of this? Uh, We're going to be looking at quite a bit of scripture here. We'll be in Matthew, of course. We're going to look at other passages uh, as well that sort of shed light on what's going on here. Uh, For Matthew, we're going to be starting at chapter 27, verse 31, and then we're actually going to read through the rest of that chapter and into chapter 28 all the way to to verse 10 uh, of chapter 28. So let's just dive right in. Let's read. Uh, I'll I'll posit points as I always do and sort of interject and do some teaching. Not that we'll necessarily look at every little detail of every verse because we have so much scripture to go through. It would take days to do that, but we'll certainly highlight what's of great significance here. And so starting verse 31 here of chapter 27 of Matthew, it says, After they had mocked him, speaking here of Jesus being mocked and mocked by the soldiers, right? So after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene, named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross, right? So at this point, Jesus, from, from his flogging, he's in uh, such poor physical condition that can be so severe, even to the point of people dying there and never making it to crucifixion. He's in such a state that, that while the norm would be for the person who's going to be cross, uh, crucified to carry uh, the, the horizontal part of, of the cross, to carry that beam from where they are, right, all the way to the place of crucifixion. So it would be typical for Jesus to do that. Uh, And it's quite clear, looking at the other Gospels, that he started out that way, but clearly didn't make it very far and just physically was unable to carry that crossbeam of the cross. And so, well, what do the Romans do? Well, they see this guy, Simon, they sort of pull him aside and say, hey, you're going to carry this cross. Uh, So they make him do that. They force him, Simon of Cyrene, to carry that crossbeam of the cross for Jesus. And then reading on verse 33, it says, They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes 
by casting lots. And we're going to sort of come back to this, that whole dividing up his clothing uh, by casting lots. There's there's sort of some significance here. Uh, What we're going to see as we read on, uh, there's an awful lot of drawing upon Psalm 22. And this is a Psalm of David. We're going to read certain parts of it. Uh, But we really see it all throughout this passage that we're going to be reading. Uh, References back to Psalm 22. And Psalm 22, it's a Psalm of David that's certainly about him and relevant for his situation, uh, sort of in a situation of feeling a little bit forsaken by the Lord, though not truly forsaken. Uh, Enemies all around, right? Sort of his life on the line. Uh, And so he's writing about that. But what we realize is, while yes, it's about David, it's about his his situation in, in that day and age, Significantly, it's really pointing forward to the one from the line of David who would come, which of course is Christ himself. More significantly than being about David, it's about the coming Messiah and prophetic about him. And so we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but we'll put that uh, on pause at this, po- at this point. So verse 36, reading on. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Right? And sort of, you know, what are they saying here? Jesus at one point said, hey, destroy this temple and I'll, I'll rebuild it in three days. Right? So the Jews are thinking, well, he's talking about this, this structure, the temple there, that building right, uh, for worshiping the Lord, the place where the presence of God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. Right? And they're thinking, hey, you know, how are you going to, this, this building gets torn down, how are you going to build it in three days? You know, this takes years and years and years to build. Uh, but of course, if, as we think of, well, what is a temple, uh, maybe the first thing that our minds would come to is, well, that's a place where you go in, in sort of the most generic sense and you worship some god. Uh, but particularly in an ancient Near Eastern context, uh, context, it's not just where you worship, but it's the place where the divinity's presence dwells in that temple. So that God, right, if you think of sort of the whole ancient Near East and all of their pagan deities, their, their notion of the temple would be that's the place where their God dwells. Uh, and, and this is certainly true for, for the Jews, for their God, the one true God, dwelling in the temple. And so as we speak of temple, it's really the place of dwelling of God. So we can talk about our, our bodies being temples of the Holy Spirit because that's where the Holy Spirit dwells. And so Jesus, as he's saying, hey, you know, destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in, in three days. He's talking about himself, his body, right? His body is a temple of, of, of God, right? He is God the Son, and so his body is contains the presence of of God himself because he is God. And so he's saying, hey, if you put me to death, if you destroy this temple, my body, well, I will rebuild it. It will rise on the third day, right? That's what he's saying. But they they misunderstand. They think it's about the temple structure, the building, right? So that's why they're saying that you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, this is verse 41, in the same way the chief priests The teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. 
In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Right, if we look at the Gospel of Luke, it's quite clear that one of these criminals being crucified uh, with Jesus ultimately wound up repenting and turning toward the Lord in faith and, and receiving, certainly received life in him. But certainly at the outset, as we see here, they're both sort of heaping insults upon, upon Jesus here. So then going on, verse 45, from noon until 3, right, Jesus was crucified. He was hung up on the cross at 9 a.m. So now you get to, to noon, and if starting at noon until 3 in the afternoon. From noon until 3 in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. Now, related to this darkness, right, we don't really know exactly what it was. It's clearly not sort of some typical darkness. It's not like, well, it was sunny, and now all of a sudden some passing clouds are coming by. It's just sort of, you know, cloudy for a little bit. This is clearly something very outside the norm. Uh, it would not have been a solar eclipse. That could be something your mind would go to. This was at the time of the full moon. Uh, so just sort of astronomically, that, that, that wouldn't be the case. Uh, the moon wouldn't be in the right position to block out the sunlight. Uh, a, a very likely possibility, though, it could certainly be something else, is some sort of sandstorm that, that could happen from time to time. Uh, a great sandstorm that would really darken the sky, block out the sun quite a bit. Um, so that's possible. It could just be something miraculous where God just darkens the sun and that's it. But we know there's some sort of remarkable darkness that comes over all the land. And then it says, verse 46, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just a little quick note, uh, some translations are going to say Eli, Eli, others will say Eloi, Eloi. Uh, Eli is, is Hebrew for my God, Eloi is Aramaic, uh, and there are New Testament manuscripts here of Matthew, some that have one Eli, some that have Eloi. Uh, I would say probably, and so different translations, you know, they're sort of split. Some translations will go with the Aramaic, some will go with, um, with the Hebrew, people are sort of torn over this. So if yours says something different, that's why, if it says Eloi instead of Eli. Uh, I think probably the Aramaic it makes more sense since the rest of the statement is in Aramaic. Uh, Lemma Sabachthani is Aramaic rather than the Hebrew. Uh, so it, it makes more sense to render this as, as the Aramaic and that he would have said Eloi, as many of the manuscripts say, and also as the Gospel of Mark says. And probably some sort of scribe at some point as he's thinking about what's to come sort of in the next verse where uh, the people around sort of mistake him here for calling, as though he's, they mistake what he's saying and they think he's calling out for Elijah. Eliyahu is how you say that in Hebrew. So they're probably thinking, well, you know, even though it's written here, Eloi, he must have said the Hebrew, which is Eli, and that sounds more like Elijah, and that would make more sense for why the people around would have thought he was calling to Elijah. So probably that's how that little error in certain manuscripts crept in, but nothing great overly significant, but just a little note if your translation might render that a little bit differently. But again, probably it should be the Aramaic, which is Eloi, Eloi, Lemma Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I want to talk about this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is uh, from Psalm 22. I mentioned that, that there's a lot of reference here to Psalm 22, uh, as I said, a Psalm of David. But again, more significantly than being about David is that it's really speaking of the one who's to come from the line of David, that, that future Davidic king, the Messiah, really more significantly talking about, about Christ and prophetic uh, about him. 
And, but I want to talk a little bit more specifically in the sense of what I would say is being said here is not just that Jesus said this first verse of Psalm 22, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then that's it. That's all he said. Uh, I would say that what this verse is saying when it says Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This would have been the way of saying that he cried out and stated all of Psalm 22, right? For the Jews, the way that they made reference to any sort of written work, right? Nowadays, we sort of think of a book having a title, some sort of official title uh, that, that isn't necessarily directly from the text of the work itself. So you buy a book and it has some sort of title, that kind of a thing. Uh, for the Jews, the way they referred to a certain work, whether that's a book of the Bible or a psalm or something else, uh, was typically the first word or, or some of the first words or, or words at the start uh, of that work. And so if you're, and we see this with even today, Jewish names for, for certain books of the Bible. It's very typical. It's just sort of the first word. It's not necessarily all that that book is really about or the main idea. Often it's just what's the first word in the first verse of the first chapter, and that's the name of the book. So the way here you would make reference to, right, if we were going to say, oh, Jesus said Psalm 22, that's what we'd say. We'd say he said Psalm 22. Well, that's not how they would have said it in that day and age. They would have said Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That would have been, in effect, the title for Psalm 22. So the way you would say, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Psalm 22, would be exactly what's written here. Jesus cried out in a loud voice, what is their title, which would be Eli, Eli, Lema Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this isn't just for me. There are other scholars who certainly make note of this and would say, right here what Jesus is doing is not stating one line one verse, right, from Psalm 22, but very clearly what, what Matthew is saying here and identifying Jesus is saying is, is stating here as he's on the cross the whole Psalm, uh, Psalm 22. And I think it makes great sense because especially, too, if you don't understand this as the whole Psalm, in a sense it's a little bit of a peculiar statement on Jesus' part. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, he knows. He knows why he's being forsaken a little note about being forsaken, I would say it's not that Jesus is forsaken here in the most extreme, complete sense, right? Jesus and the Father are one. The Son is in the Father, the Father's in the Son. Jesus states that himself uh, very clearly. You can't ever fully separate the two. The Father's always in the Son, and the Son in the Father. Uh, and so there can't be this complete forsaking where the Father just totally pulls his presence away from the Son, has nothing to do with him as he's pouring out his wrath on the Son. Uh, but I would say at the same time, it is right and appropriate to speak of him being forsaken in a sense, to a certain degree, in the sense that the Father, as Jesus is taking the place of, of sinful man, right, and so is falling under the wrath of God, as he pours out, as the Father pours out his wrath on the Son, even as he's delighting in his Son for his faithfulness and obedience to the Father and carrying out this role, the reality is, is as Jesus stands in that position, the Father would naturally sort of uh, withdraw the, the joyful experiencing of his presence. Even if he's still present with the Son because he's coexistent with him, he can't ever be fully separated from the Son, yet uh, the perception of his joyful presence could in a sense be taken from the Son, and so there'd be a sense of a feeling of forsakenness by the Father, especially as 
Jesus stands in, in the place of sinful man and the Father pours out his wrath upon the Son. And so there is a forsakenness, and that's, that's right to speak of that. But I do want us to understand, it's not to say that it is sort of this, this complete sense of forsakenness where the Father totally separates from the Son as sort of, while you're under my wrath, I have nothing to do with you. You know, based on his very, very being, that's not possible. But nonetheless, there is a, a, a sort of forsakenness in the case of Jesus where he sort of separates in a sense, pulls away uh, the perception of his presence, separates sort of in that sense as he pours out his wrath upon his son who's standing in the place of sinful man. And so there is a forsakenness, but still, why would Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows exactly why this has happened, why he's forsaken in a sense uh, by the Father, not that he's permanently forsaken and not in the fullest sense, but, but there is a forsakenness. He knows why. It's his whole reason for coming to this earth. He knows his mission. He knows what he's he understands that he is being forsaken here in this sense on the cross here bearing the weight of sin and the wrath of the father to make atonement for sin to rescue mankind so why would he cry out here my god my god why have you forsaken me he knows why i mean you could say is it for effect for those who are around who could hear him really makes sense because he's not giving any sort of answer or teaching them anything or stating anything. In in a sense, it's just sort of open-ended. Why? I'm not sure. That would be the sense that it would communicate. Uh, So I don't think that we we would rightly interpret this as all Jesus says here is is this one line of Psalm 22. I, I think if anything, that would be a little bit perplexing. Why does he say, why have you forsaken me? When he knows exactly why. But I'd say the reason it's worded that way is that's the title, effectively, for Psalm 22. And while Jesus is hanging on the he says all of Psalm 22. And I'm not going to read all of it, but I want to highlight certain parts because we see this already in, in the scripture that we've read here from Matthew chapter 27. Uh, we see great parallels to, to Psalm 22. And again, what Jesus is saying here is this Psalm, Psalm 22, that is, yes, initially about David, but more significantly speaks of the coming one in the line of David, the Messiah, right? It more significantly speaks of the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, I am that one, right? As he says here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And reads the whole rest of Psalm 22. He's saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one this psalm is all about and pointing forward to. I am the one that this psalm has prophesied about and spoken of. I'm the Messiah, and here I am carrying out the role of the Messiah, making atonement for sin. So let me read a few parts. It starts, as I already mentioned, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So David here is experiencing a a sort of forsaken. It's not that he's really been forsaken by God, but he sort of feels that way as the enemies are surrounding him, his life's sort of on the line, he's crying out for help, and he he feels like he's not being heard, and so he feels forsaken in a sense. and again, that's, that's very reflective of, of Christ and, and his role here and what he's doing. This sort of a forsakenness. Again, not to say that he's truly or finally or completely forsaken by the Father. In fact, the Father in that moment would have been delighting in his Son, certainly loving him infinitely, delighting in his faithfulness and obedience. Yet as his Son has taken the sinner's place, there would be a natural sort of pulling away as he pours out his wrath and a sort of forsaking in a sense. And so it's perfectly uh, relevant to, to, the, to Christ and his situation and even in David's time, a thousand-ish years ahead of time, is already pointing forward to that one from the line of David, the Messiah, who would come and who would be forsaken in a sense. But then it goes on. This is verse 6 in Psalm 22. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised 
by the people. Sounds an awful lot like Jesus in his situation here as he's being crucified, right? Scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Look at even the exact wording of in Matthew verse 33, right? Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. It's basically the exact same wording. Again, that's no coincidence, right? Because Matthew understands here certainly what's going on, and Jesus here drawing upon his and saying, I'm the one that this is speaking of, right? And we see it perfectly fulfilled here as Matthew records all that took place, the fulfillment of, of Psalm 22 here in, in relation to Christ as the Messiah. And then it goes on right here. Now I'm reading Psalm 22, verse 8. It says, he trusts in the Lord, they say, let the Lord rescue him. Now, if we come to verse 43 of Matthew that we're reading, he trusts in God, let God rescue him. Right Again, we see these perfect parallels, the perfect fulfillment of the psalm uh, right here in Matthew. We see Christ fulfilling this. He is the one Psalm 22 is all about. Right? Yes, David's speaking about himself, but more significantly, speaking about the one to come, the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, this is me. This is who I am. That's why he reads this whole psalm. And he's, he's telling the world, all who are there, I'm the Messiah. You might be putting me to death. You don't get it, but I'm the Messiah, and I'm the one who perfectly fulfills all of those prophecies about him. Right, as you read on, you lay me, this is, this is in Psalm 22, this is verse 15, you lay me in the dust of death. Again, sounds perfect in, in relation to Christ, not just in relation to David in his time. Going on, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Again, sounds an awful lot. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Again, this is perfectly fulfilled in Christ. Right? If we come back to verse 35 of Matthew 27, when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Right? All of this is being fulfilled and wondrously so. But then as we get to verse 24 in Psalm 22 here, it says, For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. In a sense, this is sort of a, a note of it doesn't end, if we're talking about David in his situation, it doesn't end with his death, right? He's sort of in a terrible situation. He feels forsaken, enemies all around, but ultimately, right, uh, the Lord isn't going to be against him and crush him, allow these enemies to crush him, but he delivers him, right? And, he, and so this sort of a, a positive note at the end, that this doesn't end in death. And again, this is perfectly relevant and points toward Christ and his situation of, yes, this might seem terrible, just like David's situation. Here he is, everybody's mocking him, everybody's hurling insults at him, shaking their head, right? Uh, he's there hanging on a cross, right? Uh, he's, he's dying and will very shortly die as he's on this cross. But ultimately, that's not how it's going to end. It's not like that's the end of the story. He dies, game over, right? But rather, there's a note of hope, right? And of course, that's fulfilled in his resurrection. And so what Jesus is saying here, he's not just saying, hey, uh, you know, I'm being forsaken in a sense by the Father. And he's just stating one line of Psalm 22. But I'd say very clearly, he's reading the whole thing. And he says it out loud for all to hear Messiah. This, this psalm that, yes, is about David, but is thoroughly messianic. He's saying, I'm the fulfillment of it. And here it is being fulfilled right in this moment as he's being crucified. And that's what he's saying there. But then, reading on here, so now we're at vor- verse 47. So he's just said, Eli, Eli, Lemek, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And he goes on, when some of those standing there heard this, they said he's calling Elijah, right? They sort of misunderstood him, and they think that he's, instead of uh, referring to God, Eloi or Eli, they think he's referring to Elijah. So, oh, he's calling Elijah. So reading on verse 48, immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him, right? Let's see what happens. Let's see if Elijah shows up. Then verse 50, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Right, not that we can know for certain, but probably this points to a heart attack as the ultimate cause of his death. Right, sort of the likely ways of dying, um, being crucified, probably first and foremost would be asphyxiation, that basically you suffocate, you can't breathe, you have no more strength left, you can't lift yourself up just to be able to take that breath. And so, right, you, you die because you can't breathe. You suffocate effectively, right? That would be the most common, but it doesn't seem like that's the case for him. The other way that you could die is, is uh, all of this does damage to your body and around your heart and the pericardium. It fills with fluid, puts pressure on the heart. It struggles to beat, and ultimately you wind up having a heart attack. And that seems to fit. Again, that's a little bit speculative. We don't know. It doesn't say explicitly. But that seems to be a little more consistent with how this describes sort of his final moment and his death, that he cries out again in a loud voice and then gives up his spirit and dies. And then going on, 51. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Great significance here. It's not like, oh, it's just sort of randomly I'll make note of something that happened at this moment, you know, Matthew here. But, but this great significance that in this moment, God is calling attention to what Jesus is doing here and accomplishing, what he has just accomplished through his death. At the moment of his death, what does God do? Miraculously, he causes the curtain of the temple to be torn into. The, and the whole purpose of this curtain, right, this would have been the curtain uh, right at the entrance into the Holy of Holies. So this is the place where God's presence dwelt. And there's a curtain there that sort of symbolizes, right, that there's a separation between God and man. It's not like you can just come into the presence of this, of this holy, righteous God, right, even as sinful, wretched creatures, right? We can't do that. Our sin has separated us from God. We cannot just come into his presence. We'll be consumed if we even try to. So sin causes this separation, and that curtain there is certainly symbolic of that, representing that there is sin and there is a separation between God and man. As a result, but now Jesus has died in his death, right? He's taken our place, taken our sin. He's paid for it in full. And so now for those who trust in Christ, who put their faith in him with a repentant heart, right? His atoning work on the cross is applied to them and they are forgiven. Their sins are washed away and cleansed. They're forgiven. They receive eternal life. And so in this work that Christ has accomplished, this atonement for sin, right? The result is now, well, hey, sin's paid for. It's dealt with. Sin is no longer there creating because it's been dealt with and fully paid for. Right, the wrath of God has been satisfied in Christ through through what He did on the cross. Right now, there's no more sin to create that barrier between God and man because it's been dealt with. It has been erased. It has been washed away and cleansed. It's been paid for in full. So, sin for those who trust in Christ, right, it's dealt with. So, it's no longer there to create that barrier and that separation between God and man. And so, right now in Christ, we've been brought back to God, restored to Him, reconciled to Him. We have access to Him. We've been brought back to Him into communion with Him and have access to him. And that's the statement that's being made there, right? There's no more a a, a wall, a curtain, a barrier between God and man as a result of sin because Jesus has dealt with our sin. He's paid for the wall. And so now we are restored and brought back to God and have access to him. So, right, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, 
the rocks split and the tombs broke open. So we have an earthquake here. It could be that this is how that curtain of the temple tears. Uh, It could be a separate, just miraculous thing that that God does. But at this very moment, as Jesus dies, right, there's an earthquake. The earth shakes. The rocks split. The tombs break open. And then it goes on. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Right? So what's going on here? There's this earthquake. Right? Ground shaking. Rocks are splitting. Tombs that that had been closed and sealed up are now bursting open as a result. And then when Jesus rises from the dead, what happens is many of these holy people, these who are people who are faithful to the Lord, what happens for them? Well, they rise from the dead as well. And they wind up going into the city, right, into Jerusalem and appear to many people. And this is just a powerful testimony to Christ and his resurrection that it happened, right? This is proof of it. Not only did he rise, but now there's an abundance of, of righteous, holy people People who are faithful to the Lord who've died and yet they've risen as well, pointing toward the, the truthfulness and the historicity of Christ's resurrection, that that really happened, but also pointing toward what his resurrection brings about. Life for those who belong to the Lord through his death and resurrection, triumphing over sin and death. What is the result for those who belong to the Lord who trust in him? Life. Life everlasting in him. And, and so you have these people and, and they've come back to life and you can imagine them, they, they Go back into the city, and you can imagine there are people there who, who are thinking, hey, it's, it's dad or grandpa, and you died two years ago. How, how are you here? What's, what's going on? What's the deal, right? And it's this powerful, miraculous testimony to Christ and his resurrection and the life that comes about for those who are in Christ, for those who belong to him, what he has brought about for those who trust in him uh, through his death and resurrection. He brings about life. And we know that truly we will experience a bodily resurrection, again, in Christ on that last day when he returns. So continuing on, verse 44, uh, 54, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Right, their immediate response is, is a bit of terror because, well, you know, think about if you're the centurion, you're the officer in charge, right? And so you've sort of uh, led this whole execution, this crucifixion. It was all under your charge. And now, you see, the centurion, he's, he's no fool. Everybody else who sort of doesn't get what's going on, they sort of miss all the signs that are plain to see right in front of them. They're the foolish ones. But the centurion here has eyes to see what's really going on, at least to a certain extent. He takes note of all these signs. He's here, right, over seeing this crucifixion, and as Jesus is being crucified, well, this, this unusual darkness just comes over the land from noon to three o'clock, a sort of ominous darkness, right? Then at the moment Jesus dies, even if he's not aware yet of, of the curtain being torn into, you might figure, well, it would take time for word to get back to him. Nonetheless, at the moment of his death, the earth starts shaking, rocks are splitting, right? The centurion here is no fool. He takes note of all these signs and recognizes clearly, right, this is from God, and it's a statement about this Jesus who's being crucified, and it's that he didn't deserve it, right? That he wasn't guilty of any crimes, that he didn't deserve to be crucified, right? And as he says, surely he was the son of God, and he's thinking for himself, and I'm the one who put him to death. I'm the one in charge of this. So there's a sense of terror over, you can imagine for him. So what does this mean for me? Clearly wrong was done here and I'm the one who is the officer in charge. And so there's a sense of, of terror, right? Certainly a, a degree of fear of the wrath of God that might fall on him, recognizing he has done wrong to the son of God, right? And he, he makes this acknowledgement, surely he was the son of God. Now we have to understand this sort of in its context. This is, you know, a centurion Roman Empire sort of 
what would he mean in that? It's possible that this is true, genuine, saving faith, that suddenly it's like God opens up his mind and his heart to the truth and, and he gives his life to the Lord and believes. It's also possible that he's making this statement sort of in a Roman way, which would be, you know, there's lots of deities out there and, you know, they wind up doing things with humans and then you have these demigods that result and he might be thinking, well, surely this is the son of God, meaning, you know, well, some God up there, there's many in, in the Roman pantheon, comes down, has relations with a woman. Now you have sort of this son of God who's a demigod. And, and, and could he possibly be interpreting and making that statement in that light? Sort of, this is a son of God in some sense. He's more than just a man. But it doesn't necessarily mean that he understands it in sort of the truest sense. That's also possible. The reality is we don't know if this is a statement of, of true saving faith or sort of a sense of surely this man was the son of some sort of divinity and, and superhuman in, in some sense. Uh, he could mean it in either sense. We, we just don't know is the reality. But bottom line is he takes note of the signs. He understands, right, that this is something that Jesus did not deserve, right? God certainly allowed it to happen to carry out his purposes, his plan for atonement to be made for sin, but that Jesus had done nothing wrong. It didn't deserve this. The centurion understands that. He sees all the signs. He reads all the signs. And so he says, right, with a sense of fear, right, surely he was the son of God. Going on, verse 55, many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, so we're talking Saturday here, the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Right, so the Jews are concerned here. Oh, you know, what's going to happen? This guy, you know, he had said he's going to rise on the third day, this Jesus, right? And, and they're thinking, of course, that can't happen. But, you know, his disciples, they're going to come. They're going to steal his body away and claim, look, he's risen from the dead. So they figure, you know, we, we need to secure things. We need to make sure there's no funny business going on here. So they, you know, put a seal on the tomb. They post a guard. Everything's good and secure, right? But, of course, that's not going to stop Christ from rising from the dead. As we'll read. So now we move on to chapter 28. This is verse 1. After the Sabbath, right, so this is Sunday we're talking now, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Don't be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. 
He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Right, so we come to the end of the passage here and sort of looking at, at all that we've talked about, what sort of, what, what's taking place in all of this? We see here, certainly, this is the account, the story of Christ, his, his death, his resurrection. Uh, this, is, this all took place, historical fact, and I want to talk about that a little bit later in my message, because I know there's some who might say, you know, I have a hard time believing this. I understand what you're saying, Pastor Steve, but I don't know if I'm yet at the point of being able to believe that. I'll address that in a little bit. We'll save that for a moment. But we see here the death and the resurrection of Christ. But again, what I want to talk about is what's going on here, right? It's easy to sort of understand, yep, this is what Scripture says. There are people who can sit in a church in the pews for years and years and years, They've heard plenty of messages from Scripture about Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And they understood, well, yeah, you know, they understand that's what took place. But they don't really understand what really took place in the midst of it. What was going on? Why did it happen? Why did Jesus come to die and then to rise again? What's the whole purpose? What's being accomplished? And we see it. I've already sort of touched upon it a little bit. But we see this very clearly in a couple passages that I want to read for us. One is 1 John Chapter 4, verse 10. And here's what it says. John writing, and he says, This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Right? So here's what he's saying. In love, God sent his son, and and what did the son do? He went and was that atoning sacrifice for our sins. He was that sin offering that made atonement for our sins. He took our place, right? He was that that sacrificial lamb, that sin offering that that took our place, right? He took our place. We're sinful. We know we deserve judgment. We deserve the wrath of God. And Jesus said, I'll be that atoning sacrifice for you. I'll stand in your place. I'll be that sacrificial offering, that sin offering. I'll stand in your place, the place of sinful man. I'll take your sin and I will take your punishment, right? God is just. He is going to punish sin. He will punish evil, right? He's not going to just sweep it under the rug like, no big deal. You're okay. It's fine. No, sin must be punished and rightfully so. But what God says is, hey, I will punish my son in your place. He will stand in your place, right? He will take your sin and I will punish him in your stead in place of you, right? And if only, we see this in the next passage that we're going to read here, if only you repent and believe in me, Jesus says, then that atoning work of the cross will be applied to your life, right? John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, right? So what's going on with, with the death, the resurrection of Christ He's that, that atoning sacrifice for our sins. He takes our place and he pays for it in full. Our sin has to be paid for, but he says, I'll pay for it for you, right? We, we can't pay it in full. We would spend all of eternity trying to pay for it and it would never be done, never be finished. We would spend forever and ever and ever in the fires of hell, never truly satisfying the wrath of God. But Jesus says, I'll, I'll do what you can't do, 
right? I will take your place. I will take the full, infinite measure of the wrath of God, right? I will pay for your sin. That's what he does on the cross, and he makes atonement for sin. But it doesn't mean that everyone receives this work of Christ, but he says, again, as we note in John 3.16, that it's whoever believes in him who will not perish but have eternal life, right? Jesus does that objective work on the cross of making atonement for sin, but that doesn't mean that it's applied to everyone's life, right? He makes atonement for sin, but it's for those who come before the Lord and repent of their sins and trust in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Trust in him, his work on the cross for the atonement of of, of their sins. So for those who repent and believe, they receive Right? We receive that atoning work of Christ, what he did on the cross, paying for our sins in full so that they are no more. They've been dealt with, they're erased, done and over with. Right? So for those who trust in Christ, they receive that forgiveness, that atoning work of Christ. And then, of course, Christ having done away with sin, having paid for it in full, right? of course, on Easter, right? what does he do? He rises from the dead. If he's taken our sinful place, we just sort of think logically about it. He's taken the place of sinful man, and he's taken the wrath of God, and he truly, fully satisfies that wrath. If he truly, fully pays for that sin in full, then it has no more hold on him. And its consequences, death namely, has no more hold on him. And so it's only logical that if he's truly paid for sin, and it's done and over with, paid in full, that that he has to rise from the dead, right? The consequences of sin can no longer be valid for him because he's paid for it all. He's satisfied that wrath of God, right? He has fully made atonement for it, and so, of course, he rises from the dead in victory, in triumph over sin and death. That's what's going on in the death and resurrection of Christ, right? He makes atonement. He takes our place. He makes atonement for sin, and all who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus receive that atoning work of his. Their sins are forgiven, right? And they receive everlasting life in the Lord. So that's what's going on here. But now I want to come to that question because I realize this is, this is a reality for many people. Uh, that They might say, you know, theologically, I understand what you're saying, Pastor Steve. I get that. That makes sense. But I'm not sure I believe it. Right? Do I believe that Jesus is God the Son, like you say? Do I believe that he existed, that he died, that he rose from the dead, that he accomplished this atoning work. Do do I believe that all? I understand factually what you're saying, but I'm not sure that I'm there and I really believe it, right? Some might say that. And so I want to address that. First of all, I would say it's really a matter of historical fact that Jesus existed. Even the strongest atheist, if he's going to be fair and honest, if he's a scholar, if he knows history, is going to say, oh, oh, yeah, sure, you know, Jesus existed. Yeah, that's, that's just a fact. You can't dispute that. This Jesus from Nazareth who lived, you know, 22,000-ish uh, years ago, uh, right? Yep, that's a historical fact. The fact that he died, that he was crucified, that's really a historical fact. There's really no disputing that. But nonetheless, I'll, I'll demonstrate that here as we look at Scripture and some other places as well. But I'd say typically where people have the issue is, do I really believe that he was God and that he really rose from the dead and really made atonement for sin, Right? Atheists would say, okay, I can believe he existed and died, but he was just some regular man. He was just some teacher, you know, who was put to death and so forth. Do I really believe he's God? Do I really believe that he rose from the dead? And I want to speak to that because there's such a great abundance of evidence that I feel like if, if you're shown the evidence, it seems just so overwhelming that, uh, that in my mind, I sort of feel like, how can one not believe? And I'll start by going to Scripture, but I'll look outside of Scripture as well because I realize some people might say, you know, you're just going to the Bible. I, you know, I don't believe that's the word of God. You know, I certainly do, but some may not. So I'm going to go first to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And here Paul is speaking, and I'm going to read verses 3 through 8, and here's what he says. 
For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Right? I'm not going to talk about every little bit of what I just read, but I want to zero in on the fact that what Paul says here is that Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers, even at just one time. Forget all of the other times that Jesus appeared to his followers, right, from the time that he rose from the dead till ultimately he ascended to the Father. Right? He certainly appeared to his followers numerous times. <clears throat> but what Paul is saying here is, Just even looking at one time, at that one time he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers. And he says, by the way, most of them are still alive. A few have died, but most of them are still alive. In a sense, right, look at the testimony here concerning Christ and and who he is and all that he did, that he really did rise from the dead. At just one time, more than 500 people can say, I saw him. That one occasion, I saw him, I saw the risen Lord, I know it, it's a fact. Right? And what does Paul say? Again, this isn't just the eyewitness testimony of one person and, hey, is that one person a little off his rocker and maybe he can't be trusted? No. Paul's saying, hey, even at just this one time, more than 500 people saw him. And he says, they're mostly still alive. And if you want to, you can go and fact check. You can go and talk to them, most of these more than 500 who are still alive, and they'll all tell you what they saw. Right? And their stories will all line up. They all saw the risen Lord. They saw Christ after he had died, after he'd been crucified, laid in that tomb, yet they saw him risen from the dead, right? Think, of, think about that. It, you know, if you think of a, a trial, some sort of trial in, in our courts today, if you have one eyewitness testimony, I mean, that's pretty significant and powerful and makes a great case. I mean, imagine now saying, hey, you got more than 500 eyewitness testimonies here, again, most of whom are still alive, and they can all tell you exactly what they saw. And this is how confident they were of what they saw, too. The reality is, you think of that early church, these were people who were willing to die for what they believed in, right? If they knew this was a hoax and they're just doing it for fame or money or some other reason, right? They wouldn't put their lives on the line. They wouldn't ultimately die for what they believed in. Think of people like Paul, the, right? Think of, think of the 12, the disciples, the apostles. Think about so many of the followers of Christ who, right? They knew this was no, no hoax. They weren't making it all up for fame or money or whatever it might be. And you can see that by the fact that, that first of all, they suffered greatly in service to the Lord. It wasn't like they were making bank and, and money and it was in their own self-interest necessarily from the perspective of the world and the world's way of thinking, right? And ultimately, so many of them, a great abundance of them, gave their lives, right? If, if they were doing it all just to pull the wall over people's eyes, when suddenly their lives were on the line, they'd abandon it. They'd say, yeah, I just, I made it up. I, you know, it wasn't true. But these were people, a huge abundance of eyewitness accounts, and these were people who were so certain, who were so on board, they knew it was true that they were willing to die for it, and so many of them did die for it. That's powerful eyewitness testimony. And thinking of, of evidence, I want to I give a, a quote here from a certain uh, Dr. Simon Greenleaf. Uh, I think I've used this quote before in sermons about the resurrection, but I just think it's, it's so wonderful, so powerful. Uh, Simon Greenleaf lived uh, in mostly the, the 
Roberts. He was born 1783, uh, died in 1853. He was born in Newburyport, Mass., so a local from generally this area, Massachusetts, North Shore. Uh, he was truly a giant in the field of law. He was a Harvard University professor uh, who wrote uh, this book, Treatise on the Law of Evidence, which was a standard textbook in American law throughout the 19th century. His expertise, I mean, he was a giant in law generally in the field of law, but his special area of expertise was evidence in the court of law. That was his area of expertise. He was sort of the leading man on that matter in the whole country. So if you're talking about evidence for something, as we're going to think of evidence for the resurrection, well, like, he'd be your guy to go to. He's the expert on evidence. And here's what he says. According to the laws of legal evidence used in courts of law, there is more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for just about any other event in history. Right? Those are his words, just sort of saying, hey, let's, let's apply the rules of the court of law and evidence and so forth. Let's just apply that to Christ and the resurrection, all the eyewitness accounts that we have and so forth and so on. Let's just take a look and apply the same rules that we'd apply in the court of law. And he says, you know, based on that, right, there's more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus than for just about any other event in history. For so many events in history, we have like one historian or two, maybe three, who give some sort of account of some historical event. And we take their word for it, and we don't question it, you know. Yet then it comes to the resurrection of Christ, and we have, you know, even at just one time, 500 eyewitnesses who can say, I saw him. And then we have other people, right, the 12. We have, we have people like, you know, Peter. We have, we have the Apostle Paul here. We have so many others who can say, I saw him. I saw him risen from the dead. And yet we sort of ignore that, even though the evidence is so immeasurably greater than the evidence for all sorts of other historical events, yet we'll believe those other events, yet for so many, even in spite of the abundance of of evidence and testimony concerning the resurrection of Christ, so many people still say, I refuse to believe it, I just won't. But even if that's not enough, just looking at at Paul talking about the, the eyewitness testimony here that we have concerning the resurrection, the great abundance of people who can say, I saw it in my eyes. And even in Paul's day, as he's saying, he's saying, if you don't believe me, go ask them. They're still alive, mostly. Even if you don't believe Dr. Simon Greenleaf, who's an expert in in law and evidence, uh, let's take a look at, at another person. This is Josephus. Josephus was born just a few years after, after Christ's death. He was born in 37 AD. If we think of Christ's death, usually it's dated to either 30 AD or 33 AD. So we're talking like, you know, four or seven years after Jesus' death is when Josephus was born. Uh, he was a Jewish historian, or you could sort of say Jewish Roman, because he sort of defected a little bit over to the Roman side. Uh, born, as I said, 37 AD, lived to around 100 AD. Uh, he was a Jew. Uh, he had even fought for the Jews against the Romans, uh, sort of decided after that didn't go so well to kind of defect and switch sides and sort of join the Roman side. But sort of from both of those perspectives, the reality is he would not be a friend to Christians. So the person I'm going to quote from here, Josephus, this isn't somebody who would be biased in favor of Christians. This is somebody who, if anything, would have it out for Christians and his bias would be against them. Yet this is what he has to say as he's writing this work, Antiquities of the Jews. He's writing this probably 93 or 94 AD, so sort of later on in his life. And here's what he has to say as he's writing about, about, about Jesus and writing about Christians. This is Antiquities of the Jews. Again, remember, this is from someone who's not a Christian who would have actually been opposed to them. This is Antiquities of the Jews by Josephus, chapter 18, verses 63 and 64. Here's what he says. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, 
if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works. Right, what is, what is Josephus saying? First of all, he's saying it's just a matter of fact, right? Everybody in his day knows that he was born, yeah, a few years, you know, four to seven years after Jesus' lifetime, but, but, you know, Jesus created quite a stir in, in Judea, Galilee, and those regions that everybody would have still been talking about him. Everybody still knew all the facts about him. And so, for starters, he's saying, hey, there was this man, Jesus. You can't deny that, that he existed. He did exist. But what does he say about him, right? He says, he was a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. This is, again, somebody who's not a follower of Christ, but recognizing it's sort of everybody knows the facts. This is not some ordinary guy. It's almost like it's criminal just to call him a man because so clearly he was more than that. Right Now, I'm not saying that, Jesus, that Josephus here is thoroughly claiming Jesus is, is God the Son and so forth. I, I'm not saying that, that Josephus is, is, is being that specific, but he is aware of the fact that this, this Jesus guy was just more than your regular old man. It's almost like it, 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 it shouldn't be lawful. It's almost like it's criminal just to call him a man. And again, so he's saying he's sort of superhuman. He's something greater than man. And again, not a follower of Jesus saying this. And what else does he say? He says he was a doer of wonderful works, right? It's sort of, you can't deny in Josephus' day, everybody knew the whole region was sort of a stir and a buzz all over Jesus and these wonderful works he was doing, raising people from the dead, doing all sorts of other miracles, healing blind people and the lame and lepers. It was sort of indisputable that he was doing those things. And Josephus says it, again, he doesn't say, this is what Christians say about Jesus. He says, this is how it is. Even as someone who's not a follower of Christ, he says, it's just a matter of fact. Everybody knows this. He was a doer of wonderful works. He did all sorts of miracles. A teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. Again, he doesn't say here his followers claim he was the Christ. Even to Josephus, not a follower of Jesus, it's sort of like he knows it. It's a fact. He was the Christ. He's the Messiah. It's obvious. It's plain to see. And he goes on. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, again, identifying here, he he died on a cross. He was crucified. It's historical fact. Uh, Josephus is saying, everybody knows this. This Jesus, he died on a cross. He was condemned to the cross by Pilate. He says, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day. Because the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the sect of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day, meaning his day, 93, 94 AD. They're still around. They didn't peter out, you know, the Christians a few years after Jesus died. But what does he say here? It's a fact. He, he was crucified. He died on the cross. But he also says, again, not this is what the Christians say. He says it as though this is fact. Everyone knows this, right? He appeared to them alive again the third day. He rose from the, from the dead. And he says, you know, because the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. He say, he's the Messiah. He, he's more than just a man, right? He did all these wondrous things in his earthly ministry here while he was here, right? He says he ultimately went to a cross. He died there, but that isn't it. it it's just a fact. Everyone knows it. He rose on the third day. And, and, and what else does he say? The scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures all over the place speak of him and prophesy about him. He is the fulfillment of all these things, right? I, I mean, I look at this and I'm sort of like, Josephus, like, 
How did you not put your faith in Christ and trust in him and choose to follow him? You know all these things. You're saying this is just a matter of fact. Everyone knows it. And yet he didn't choose to become a follower of Christ. But again, this is somebody who's not a Christian, who would have been an enemy of Christians. And yet here's what he says about Jesus. It's sort of like, it's just fact, right? And he lived right after the time of Jesus, born just a few years later. It's a fact, right? He was more than just a man. Right? He was the Messiah. Everybody knows it. He died. He rose again. Right? In, in, in all the scriptures, they point toward this, and they speak of all these things. They point toward all of this taking place. Again, and I look at this, and I just say the, the, the evidence, and you can look to other sources as well, the evidence just seems to mount and become greater and greater. And I look at it and say, how can someone deny this? I, I, I want to agree, in a sense, with Simon Greenleaf, who says, according to the laws of legal evidence used in courts of law, there's more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for just about any other event in history. When the enemies of the faith are saying, yeah, it's true, it all happened. I mean, that, that's awfully telling of, of the historicity of what took place. And so if you're one of those who's saying, you know, I hear what you're saying, Pastor Steve, as you're reading through Matthew here, chapter 27, 28, looking at the death, the resurrection of Jesus. But, I, I, you know, I, get, I understand what you're talking about, but I'm just, I don't know if I believe it. I'd say, listen to what we've just talked about here. In 1 Corinthians, what Paul said about those more, even just one time, more than 500 people saw him face-to-face, risen from the dead. Or what Simon Greenleaf, the expert on, on law and evidence, has to say, just sort of taking stock of all the evidence and saying it's just, you know, there's more evidence for this than anything else in history, effectively. Or what Josephus says, even in someone who would have been an enemy of, of Christians, certainly would not have had a bias in favor of them, and basically says it's all fact. It's all happened. This all took place. It's just, it's a matter of historical fact and record, Right? Don't doubt it anymore if you're one of those people who has just had your doubts and you feel like maybe this is just, it's not true, this is just what Christians say, but I can't believe it. I'd say, no, reconsider. Look at all of the evidence in Scripture, but even outside of Scripture. Look at all of the evidence that supports that this is who Jesus is. He is God the Son. He did come become a human. He did go to a cross, make atonement for sin. He did rise on the third day in victory, in triumph, over sin, over death, right? And that for all who repent and trust in him, there's forgiveness, right? Your sins are paid for, atoned for. There's forgiveness and everlasting life. And as I think of what's our takeaway, what's our application, I would say for you who haven't yet trusted in Christ, that's your application, that's your challenge, right? Repent and believe. Finally come to that place of saying, Lord, I'm done living in sin. I'm done rebelling against you. I want to follow you. I want to live for you. And I trust in you, Lord Jesus. I believe in you and what you did on that cross. And just trust in him for forgiveness and and receive that forgiveness and everlasting life in him. But for those of us who say, I've already been convinced of this, Pastor Steve. I know this. Jesus is my Lord, my Savior. I trusted in him long ago, right? I I want us to have an application as well, and it's just to celebrate this. As we read through the story of the death, the resurrection of Christ, as we look at sort of what it's all about, just to, to celebrate Christ, celebrate our Savior, celebrate what he did for us, that he suffered immeasurably for us, celebrate that wondrous love of God, that he would do that, that he would go and take our place, make atonement for sin, celebrate the forgiveness that we have in him and celebrate the life that we have in him, life everlasting. And so I just want to challenge those of us who are believers to do that, just to celebrate him, worship him, give him thanks and praise now and indeed forevermore. Amen. And let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, thank you for, for coming to begin with, with great purpose and intent to ultimately go to a cross for us to take our place, take our sin, take our punishment, the punishment we rightfully deserve so that our sin could then be paid for in full to make atonement for our sins so that we might be forgiven through faith in you and have everlasting life. For those who haven't yet come to faith, I pray, Lord, that Holy Spirit, that you would just work in their hearts, stir them to that true faith, that repentance and faith, Lord. Whatever obstacles there are to faith, remove them and just lead them to yourself and into your kingdom. For those of us who've already done that, who've already trusted in you, Lord Jesus, may we just honor you and worship you as you so rightfully deserve. May we here on Easter celebrate your death, your resurrection, celebrate you, praise you, give you thanks, and just worship you, our great God and Savior. And may you be glorified in it all. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray.